Turn with me as you're being seated to 1 Kings chapter 18. As we continue along uh, in preaching through 1 Kings, having covered the Solomon narrative in chapters 1 through 11, then picking up with the split kingdom in chapters 12 uh, to where we are now, and then for the past few chapters having focused uh, solely on the northern kingdom, which is where we'll focus all the way through into the book of 2 Kings. Last, last Sunday morning in morning worship, we covered chapter 17 where we were introduced into a figure that will kind of be in the spotlight of the book of Kings, the prophet Elijah. And here again in chapter 18, we pick up uh, with the prophet Elijah, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over his household. And now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. And so they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 
And so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people, all the people answered, it is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation and there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, 
eat and drink for there is a sound of rushing rain and Ahab went up and eat to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees and he said to his servant go up now and look toward the sea and he went up and looked and said there's nothing and he said go again seven times and the seventh time he said behold a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We give you thanks that you are the God of your people and that you are the God who has spoken to your people. We would pray now, Lord, that as you have spoken through the reading of your word, that you would speak through its preaching. Speak to our minds, yes. Help us to understand. But Father, speak to our hearts. Cause us to love you more and let that love flow out into obedience. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a, there's a category of thing that I really dislike as a person. My 30 years on this earth, I've come to dislike this one category of thing. And that category of thing are those two-in-one gadgets or gizmos or whatever you want to call them, the, the, the multi-tool kind of things, right? We have the kind of the, the inventions over the past few years of, of, of sporks, which are just terrible mechanisms to try to eat with. Something, right, they try to combine the spoon and the fork together and it's just, it's terrible. I learned also today that they had this other thing, or they had it in the 1940s in Europe called a splayed. It was a spoon, a fork, and a knife all in one kind of mechanism. And I don't know if you remember this back when you were in school, but in elementary school and middle school when we had book fairs, which is not really the selling of books, but it's really just the selling of all these other useless things. They had these pins in there. Multicolor pins, right? The pin was kind of one tube, but it had four different colors in there that you could kind of push out. Whichever corner you press the, 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 the clicker on, that's the color that would come out. And then there's these, uh, they were popular about 20 years ago, what they called Leathermans, right? It was like these, these plier looking things that were just, they had everything in the world and they, they were pliers, they had a knife, they had a Phillips head screwdriver, they had a flathead screwdriver, they had a, they had a, 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 a file, they had all, a bottle opener, everything that you could imagine, all in just this one little device. Why do I hate those sorts of things? It's because, really, when you try to be two things, or when you try to make a device that, that's just more than one thing, whether it be two things or three things or seven things, you end up with something that's really not really good at anything. Right? When you try to be good at two things, you really kind of, you don't end up being good at anything. That's one of the principles that they taught us, one of the only things that I remember from college, not because I was doing anything bad, but just because I was so disinterested. But 
we learned in business class that a lot of times companies fail because they forget the thing that they were really good at and they try to do so many other things that they're not really good at and it winds up to their detriment. When you try to do two things at the same time, you wind up doing neither thing very well. Isn't it the same in the Christian life? Right? Isn't it one of sin's tactics that leads many to hell and destroys many lives by leading us to believe that we can, in Jesus' words, serve two masters? Isn't it one of sin's tactics to, in Elijah's words, convince us that we can go on limping between two different opinions? Isn't it one of sin's tactics that causes many Christians to be those who straddle the fence, who really can't devote themselves to God because they've already devoted themselves to their sin. Again, just like the spork, just like the multicolor pen, just like the Leatherman plier, it's ne- it does neither thing really well. It's foolish to try to go on limping between two different opinions in Elijah's words is a foolish thing. Why? We know it's true, or I'm convinced that it's true out there with all those other little tools, but why is it true for the Christian? Why, why can't we have both our sin and our God? Well, I think first it's, it's because the two choices that are before us are not equal. Namely, because sin is abusive. Sin is abusive. That's one of the things that we learn from uh, this narrative, kind of as we lead up to the showdown at Mount Carmel. In verses 7 through 16, kind of after we're introduced into the narrative, kind of to set the stage, you remember back in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the prophet was used by God to go to Ahab and to pronounce a curse. Right, that there would be no more rain and there would be no more dew until the Lord said so. And so in chapter 18, verse 1, we kind of pick up three years into that curse. Right, there's nothing left to eat in Israel. The livestock are dying. And so Ahab tells Obadiah, his right-hand man, okay, let's go out, let's go throughout all of Israel and see if we can find grazing land for our livestock so that some of them may not die. And so in in verse 7, we we find Ahab on his trip and he runs into Elijah and he clues us in to what has been the situation in Israel for the last three years. And we learn that that what Ahab and Jezebel have tried to do is to kill that which opposed them and caused them trouble, which is the same thing that sin does, right? Sin cuts us off from that which is good. Its tactic is to silence the word of God. We learn in verse 10 that as we suspected in chapter 17, they have indeed hunted him down. 
Elijah was used by the Lord to go in to pronounce this curse, which would have been a good thing for Israel to hear. But instead of hearing it, what are they trying to do? They try to kill Elijah. In verse 10, Obadiah says, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not found here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. Elijah has become the number one man on the most wanted list in the northern kingdom. Ahab and Jezebel want his life. And they want his life because he's been the one who's pronounced the word of the Lord to him. And, and, and we see this kind of, we, this, this fear that, that Ahab, or that Ahab and, and Jezebel have become prophet killers. We see it also evident in, in Obadiah. Obadiah says three times in this short little section, this short little paragraph, that he's afraid that when he goes to Ahab that he will be killed. In verse 9, that he said, how have I sinned that you may give your servant into the hand of the king Ahab to, to kill me? In verse 12, he goes on and he says, as, as soon as I've gone from you, the spirit, he's scared that, that as soon as he goes back to Ahab, the spirit of the Lord will lead him away, will lead Elijah away, and that when Ahab comes back, Elijah won't be there, and what? That he's feared that, that, that Ahab will kill him. And then again in verse 14, he says it. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. This is what Ahab and Jezebel do. They kill prophets. Why do they kill prophets? Because the prophets speak the word of the Lord. The, the prophets are the one who confront them with, with the word of God, and, 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 which is really the only thing that would ever do them any good. But this is what sin does. Right? It cuts us off from the word of God that would do us good. Perhaps you remember as a child, I remember as a child, you know, one of the first things that I did when I, when I did something wrong and I knew it was wrong was go and hide. I remember this particular instance when... Um, when I had a, a, I had a golf cart, an electric golf cart, and, and um, I remember I, I, I was doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have been doing. I was going as fast as it would go down a hill, and then I decided to turn the steering wheel as far as I could possibly turn it. Not being a, a physics expert at the time, the, the golf cart flipped over. And I remember, you know, after the, you know, I knew the golf cart was messed up, the top was all banged up and broken and no telling what else. I remember as soon as I learned that my, my father was coming home, the thing that I did was, was, was run upstairs into my room and lock the door. <laughs> I needed to be rebuked. I needed to be warned of the danger that such, such activity would would bring. I needed, to be, I needed to be told those things. But instead of being willing to listen to those things, I went and hid. And what's the first thing that we do when we sin and we realize that it's sin? It should be go to the Lord in prayer and ask for forgiveness. But so often it's to run away. So often the last thing that we want to do is open up the word of God and hear him speak to us. 
Sin causes us to want to hide, to hide away from, from the thing that we need. It's what sin does. Sin is abusive in that it withholds that which is good. It turns us away from that which will help us. But it's also abusive in that it's actively harmful. And so Obadiah finally agrees, uh, after Elijah has requested of him a couple different times, Obadiah finally agrees to go to Ahab and to tell him that Elijah is here. And so Elijah comes and Elijah and Ahab come to an agreement, okay, we're going to do this thing, this showdown with the prophets. And so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Right? The, the, the plan is to, to gather all the prophets of Jezebel, all the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah himself, and there's going to be a showdown to see who really is God. And so here are the terms of the deal in verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You can't go on living life kind of uh, straddling the fence. You can't go on serving two different gods. And so let's, let's make a decision. So the plan in verse 23, let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord who answers by fire, he is God. And the people agree. This is a great, this is a great, great idea. We finally get to determine who is God in Israel. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? And so the prophets of Baal, they, they, they commence in their offering. In verse 26, they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And so as we kind of build to the climax in verse 27, Elijah mocks them. Right? They believed that, that their God, Baal, kind of took on human characteristics. And so Elijah plays into that. He says, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or maybe he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. What a wonderful God. He must be awakened. Until we get to the climax in verse 28. The prophets of Baal continue on. They, they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Sin is abusive in that it's also actively harmful. It deceives us into believing that we should harm ourselves and it will be for our good. Now, just kind of stepping back for a moment, 
as we think about how to, how, kind of how this works in real life. We realize as Christians that, that, that oftentimes, right, we realize that the, 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 that the promises of God in the scriptures do not promise us that, that we will be free from suffering. In other words, we know that God uses pain and suffering in our lives, events that are out of our control, to form us, to shape us, to, to mold us into the image of Christ. We know this. God uses pain to shape us and to mature us. But we also know that, that, that not all the pain is out of our control. Right? God's care involves pain, but, but, but often our pain can be self-inflicted. Right, sin, as we learned a moment ago, it not only withholds that which is good, but it also actively seeks to hurt. Right, sin deceives us in such a way that, that, that we actually hurt ourselves. Prophets of Baal, cutting themselves until blood gushes out. And so it's fitting every once in a while to sort of take a step back and, and ask ourselves, kind of reevaluate where we are and what we're doing and ask ourselves, why am I in so much pain? You know, perhaps it may be the, the, the hard season of providence that I've been given from the Lord. It may be circumstances that are out of our control. We, we, that's certainly the case. It could be. But as with the prophets of Baal, Pain may be self-inflicted. Right? It may be because we are so hard-headed and we are so deceived by our sin that our sin is hurting us. That's what it does. It's abusive. It's abusive in withholding that which is good, but it's also abusive in actively seeking to hurt us. Sin causes harm. And if sin is abusive, we know that, that, that abuse is kind of comprised of at least two major elements, right? Sin, or, or I'm sorry, abuse is comprised of, of the harm on the one hand, right? Abuse actually physically and emotionally harms its subject. But the other element of abuse is that it's deceiving, it's manipulative, it leads its subjects into believing, oh, there's nothing wrong, this is normal, this is fine, this is how things go. Sin is abusive in that it actively harms us, it withholds that which is good, but it also, it's very good at hiding that reality from us. It's very good at hiding the reality that it's actually harming us. And we see this characterized kind of very plainly in this conversation between Elijah and Ahab in verses 17 to 19. Think of, think of everything that's been going on. In chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah comes and he pronounces the curse. There will be no rain, there will be no dew until the mouth of, until the word of the Lord declares it to be so. And the first thing that Ahab says to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Right, this is coming from the mouth of a man who heard the Lord's curse with his very own ears and from the mouth of a man 
who for the past three years has actively been king over a nation that is starving to death, insomuch that he has to ask himself and his right-hand man to search through all the northern kingdom to find a valley or a brook that would have any sort of moisture whatsoever so that they don't lose not all but some of their livestock. If that's not a man that's deceived, I don't know what is. Elijah calls him out. I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Sin is abusive in that it, it causes harm, but it's also abusive in that it hides the reality of our pain from us. The same thing, as I mentioned a moment ago, is embodied in the prophets of Baal themselves. They thought that they were doing good. They thought that, that if they would just cut themselves more and spill more blood, then, then it would lead to Baal answering their prayers, right? It would be more of a spiritual thing if they would just try harder. But Ahab and Jezebel and their prophets are deceived to the maximum degree. This is what we talked about in uh, last Sunday morning in Sunday school, if you were here. It's what Thomas Brooks called presenting the bait and hiding the hook. It looks so good. It looks so fun. It looks so nice. But it's so easy to be deceived into, in, 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 in hiding the pain. He used the illustration of Samson and Delilah. Right, we have the story of Samson and Delilah in Judges chapters 15 and 16 where Delilah herself the most dangerous thing for Samson but clothed in such beauty sin is the same way that's the thing about sin it's harmful and it's very good at convincing you that it's not kind of like little small kittens. Right? They're cute and they're fluffy. But when you go to play with them and that playing kind of turns into what they perceive as fighting, the next thing you know, you've got clawing and scratching and blood. Sin looks so great. It looks so good. It, it conceals its danger so very well. As we kind of think about how to respond to, to, to the abusiveness of sin, I think there are probably at least three different kind of categories of people. There are those who have, who have been here before and, have, and, and never, ever, ever want to go back. There are those in the room who have been yoked to some indwelling sin before and they've been brought out by the grace of God and they never, ever want to go back. They realize sin is an abusive partner and they never want to go back. But there are those who've been here before but perhaps have forgotten how abusive sin really is. And so the temptation is again to go back. And then there are those who are kind of 
in this situation now who've yoked themselves to Baal, who've yoked themselves, themselves to, to, to one sin or another and, and, and they don't know it and they refuse to believe it. The word of God is illuminating for us the danger of sin. Naivety towards sin is how people get hurt. That's how lives get destroyed. That's how families get destroyed. That's how churches get destroyed. As we, as we walk through life blind to the danger which sin comprises. We're blind to the fact that sin is destructive and that, that is the, its number one attribute. And so the word of God is warning us this evening, this is the danger of sin. But it's also reminding us, not only that, that it's sin is abusive, but it's reminding us of God's kindness. And particularly that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And in contrast to the abusive nature of sin, God demonstrates his, his kindness in a number of different ways. As the prophets of Baal fail in their efforts to, to, cause, uh, to, to cause Baal to rain fire down from heaven and consume their altar or consume their offering, Elijah gets to work in verse, uh, in verse 36. I'm sorry, in verse 30. In verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord. And so Elijah uh, partakes or begins to, to, to build his own offering and rebuild the altar that had been thrown down by the false worshipers. In verse 31, this is one of the most beautiful things in the passage. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. God demonstrates his kindness first and foremost in reminding his children who are yoked to this false God of who they really are. You are still the people of Israel. You are still 12 tribes. You are still my people. Israel is your name. He reminds those people of their true identity, but he also, in verse 32, or, or going on, in the next paragraph after Elijah builds the, offer and gets it, builds the offering and gets it set up, he remind, God reminds his people that he's still as reachable now as he was before their spiritual adultery. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done it all, all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. There's no cutting, there's no extra spiritual exercises. The man has built the altar, he's put the offering upon it, he's wet it down three times and he's prayed. In verse 33, verse, I'm sorry, verse 38, 
The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah prays. And God consumes the the, uh, offering and everything around it. God is still as reachable on this day as he was before his people yoked themselves to the false god of Baal. God also shows his people that his power is unrelated to odds. It's unrelated to probability. In verse 22, we're told that the prophets of Baal number 450 and Elijah is the only prophet left in all of Israel. Odds would say more prophets, the God will respond. The more prophets, the more God will respond and God shows himself to respond just singularly to Elijah. And then in verses 33 to 35, not only does Elijah prepare the altar and prepare the offering, but then he wets it down with four jars of water three different times such that the altar itself is soaked and there's a trench of water that is filled up around it. Proving that if anything happens to this offering, that it is God who has done it. God still shows himself as powerful as before his people left him. <laughs> and finally, God shows his kindness in his patience, in his mercy, and in the abounding of steadfast love that, that this event is even happening in the first place. The people have broken covenant with God. Right? They, have, they have failed to, to take care, to, to uphold their end of the covenant. And so God would be righteous. He would be justified in writing them off. But at the climax of their spiritual adultery and at the climax of this curse that has, it it seems obvious, has not yielded any fruit whatsoever. It has not yielded any fruit in bringing his people to the realization that he is God and that Baal is not. God brings things to a head in this showdown between himself and Baal. He demonstrates his patience and his mercy and his steadfast love for his people in the fact that this event ever happens in the first place. And not only this, but that he also brings rain. It's subsequent to him winning the showdown with Baal. He, he, not, only, he not only wins that and consumes the offering and, and obviously shows himself to be God by the fire raining down from heaven, but he also sends the rain just like he said he would. Chapter 17, verse 1, it will not rain, it will not dew upon the land until I say so. God has said so, and it has happened. God's kindness has been demonstrated to his people to the end that it might lead them to repentance. God has, has, has given them no reason at all not to repent. He's given them every reason under the sun to come back to him, 
He's shown them who is God. He's, he's shown them that he's still their God. He's shown them of his power. He's shown them their mer- his mercy and his grace and his patience and his steadfast love. He's demonstrated his kindness that he might lead his people to repentance. And so this evening, whichever category you may find yourself in, whether it be that, that, that as you look back upon your life and you realize there was, a, there was a season where you were blind as a bat and yoked to some indwelling sin that you couldn't fight yourself and God delivered you from it and you realize that and you never want to go back again. If that is you, then realize that God is good, that God is kind, and that sin is abusive. Right, for those of us who, who, have, who have been here before, right, we, we, we know that we were at one point in time yoked to this indwelling sin and we could not be delivered from it, yet God in his grace delivered, it from, delivered us from it anyways. But yet we've forgotten how abusive sin really is and the temptation to go back seems to be cropping up. Realize that sin is abusive, but God is kind. And for those of us who are yoked to some sin or another in the here and now and we don't know it or or maybe we just refuse to believe it, know that sin is abusive, but God is kind. And so don't go on limping between two different opinions. Don't be a Christian that straddles the fence. Be reminded that, that of two things in particular as we close. Number one, that sin must be killed. It can't be tolerated. Sin must be killed. Slaughter it by the brook as, as Elijah slaughtered the 450 prophets of Baal. Gouge out its eyes to use Jesus' language. Cut off its hands to use Jesus' language again. Sin must be killed. But also know that, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You confess with the people of God in verse 39 that the Lord, that He is God. The Lord, he is God. And return and enjoy all the blessings that are yours in Christ. Not least of which is everything that you searched for in sin in the first place, the contentment, the joy, the satisfaction, the being loved, the provision. But also know that in Christ, returning to Christ and forsaking sin leads to you being less miserable because you have a clear conscience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we confessed not too long ago, we realize that original sin has corrupted our hearts, which proceeds and leads to actual sin where we sin against you and we break your law, but yet, O oh Lord, you are kind to your people. And you have been kind to us in Christ. 
having taken upon himself the wrath that was due our sin and clothed us with his perfect righteousness, we look forward to glory. We we rejoice in fellowship. And we give thanks for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.